Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Ada Yee. Today our guest is Niels Bros, professor and director in the Department of Molecular Biology at the Max Planck Institute of Experimental Medicine in Göttingen, Germany. We'll be speaking with him about mechanisms of neurotransmitter release, how synapses might be built, and the role of good fortune in the career of a scientist. All this and more coming up. We're here with Niels Bros, a professor and director in the Department of Molecular Biology at the Max Planck Institute of Experimental Medicine in Göttingen, Germany. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Bros. It's a pleasure. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, we know that you uh, hail from Germany originally, and I think the town of Marburg, home to the University of Marburg. Um, yes. So did you, uh, you grew up in the area. What um, was your early life like, and what first got you interested in science? I mean, I was, I was born in Marburg, but I grew up about 30 kilometers west of Marburg. This is one of the probably most rural areas um, in in central Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marburg is probably the, the largest city within a range of 100 kilometers. So it was a very rural, down-to-earth, maybe comparable to Midwest um, United mm-hmm. States um, area with, with, a very, with very little general um, you know, scientific inclination. My parents were teachers in primary school. Yeah. And um, my, I think, I mean, I, I know pretty vividly um, that that my first fascination with with science came from reading um, biographies and most most notably reading the biography of Marie Curie. That was what triggered my interest in chemistry. So I read chemistry as a, you know in, in high school as my major subject, and I actually initially wanted to study med- uh, chemistry. Yeah. So that is I, this is this is one of the few things where I can say with um, with you know with clear convict, conviction that this was a change you know a change in my perception of what is interesting and that what triggered really my interest in science these biographies particularly the one of Marie Curie mm-hmm. and what about it got you interested in doing science i think the the, the combination of uh, ingenuity and perseverance um that that she had the um, the the characteristic of you know fighting against you know against all the odds as a woman in a face in science when um uh, when women did not play a major role um you know the way she basically um yeah um persevered coming from from Poland to to France and um withstanding all kinds of um of antagonisms from all from all kinds of ends she felt, yeah. she felt like a hero in a way. Yeah, in a way, she did in a way feel like a hero based on her um, on her degree of determination, perseverance, ingenuity, and and also um, you know simple um, I don't know simple endurance. I found that fascinating, and mm-hmm. of course, yeah. then the success story is utterly amazing. You know, one of very few people who earned two Nobel prizes. Mm, yeah, that's true. So then you did your undergrad degree um, at um, the Eberhard Karls University um, in biochemistry um, yes. and then went on to do um, a master's at Oxford. So can you describe those years and um, going from biochemistry to then getting interested in neuroscience and what did you um, work on and what questions were you interested in then? Yes, um, I can do that. I mean, I have to basically preempt a if, if, if few um a few things here because much much of my 
<clears throat> my personal life trajectory was characterized less by um, thoughtful considerations <laughs> and, by, and more by, um, I don't know, by luck, by transient um, unhappiness with certain conditions uh, and yeah. things like that. You will see when, when I describe it. So when I, I said earlier I wanted to study chemistry. And at the time, um, biochemistry was a growing, um, was, was a research area and also a, you know, a research area in Germany that, that, that started to boom massively. Yeah. But in Germany, there were only three universities at which you could study it. And, and Tübingen was one of them. And, um, and it was supposed to be the best place to do it at. Yeah. Um, and it sounded better to me than, than study, studying basic chemistry. So the course in Tübingen, though, turned out to be very tiring because it was essentially a hardcore chemistry course. So we did everything the chemists did, plus mm. um, a whole set of other subjects. And it was characterized by what I felt um, very school-like um, uh, training, uh, lots of exams, actually a massive mm. number of exams in, yeah. in, in regular intervals and all kinds of subjects. And I... I passed all these exams. I have to, I have to say that in my defense, but eventually I, I got really tired of, um, of the way that 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 this course was organized, and many of my colleagues did. So the the, the group of students that started there thirty um, every year yeah. um, is usually very you know very much hand selected. The students are really good, mm -hmm. but of the thirty who started with me, only only six finished in Tübingen. Oh. And I actually never finished my course in Tübingen. I actually, I actually did a trick because at the time in Germany, we had still the uh, we didn't have the bachelor in science system, but we had the diploma system. Yeah. And the diploma course has an interim exam, which is called the pre-diploma or vor-diploma in Germany, which I was lucky enough to get accepted as a bachelor equivalent in Oxford. So after the pre-diploma, I basically abandoned my research, my, my my course in Tübingen, and went to Oxford. And this this came along with with with, the, with my beginning fascination of of neuroscience. Um, <clears throat> so the biochemistry course was of course hardcore biochemistry and chemistry. Yeah. But I um, read um, uh, uh, seminars with um, with various um, neuroscientists from the uh, Max Planck Institute of Biological Cybernetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Valentino Breitenberg was one of the one of the people. He was a cerebellum specialist, and and seeing the first neurons under the microscope fascin fascinated me utterly. Mm. Um, and this was yeah. combined with a fascination for um, neuropsychiatric diseases at the time, um, which were massively disputed in Germany and also in the circles that I was um, that I was active in. You know, what what are their causes? Are they mm -hmm. heritable? What is the genetic contribution? What is the parents or the environment contribution? Um, and also also, um, and that these were the motivations for me to focus um, my attention to neuroscience. So I abandoned the course mainly because I was really, really tired of, of, <laughs> of how they treated us, but also because I got the chance to work on the topic in in, in Oxford. Then that interested me uh, more. So let's maybe talk about that a little bit. So uh, so you had this escape plan to go to Oxford, and you actually ended up working with. Uh, a woman named, a neurophysiologist named Marianne Philens, and I, I think she trained with Eccles, is that right? Yes, she trained with Eccles, that's true. Uh, and you were using voltometry to examine the effects of benzodiazepines on dopamine levels, I think, based on your papers, in the striatum and nucleus accumbens, which actually, it's funny, funnily enough, is a very hot topic these days. Uh, I don't know what the atmosphere was like then, but so what was that experience like, um, and how did that, did that motivate you at all to continue in neuroscience? Mm -hmm. 
So I think, as you know, and th that was known at the time as well, the, the nucleus accumbens or the, the basal ganglia in general were, mm -hmm. you know, were known to play play uh, a key role in all kinds of behavioral outputs, um, and also in, in 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 the context of 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 drugs of abuse and 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 issues like that. So I found that topic very interesting, and um, I had the uh, the luck to um, meet a postdoc in Marianne's lab, which was very small and comparative. I mean, comparatively. Uh, not so important in the Oxford scene, but I, I worked with um, with an analytical chemist who developed um, carbon paste electrodes, which were huge compared to the electrodes people use now. They were almost a millimeter in diameter that he implanted in rats and, and, and measured metabolites, metabolites of dopamine um, um, most, most mostly homo vanillic acid. Mm -hmm. So, so in the course of the next decades, of course, the method the method got um, got improved, and we and others have 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 used now carbon fiber electrodes to measure dopamine or noradrenaline release from individual neurons. But at the time, that was a very crude method. Yet, um, was quite um, was quite novel. There were Hard, there was hardly anybody trying this. It was mm. quite wild because you really made big holes. Um, <laughs> so it's not comparable to what people do now in, in terms of physiological and optogenetic uh, methods to, 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 to study the, the, the striatum or the nucleus accumbens. But um, yeah. we succeeded in doing that and, and, and did simple experiments, um, basically you know, looking at drug effects on that system that, among other things, also controls motor activity. So I found that um, in the beginning... Mm -hmm. Extremely exciting because I was working with them. Um, you know, live these were f these were actually more or less freely moving animals with a, you know, with a headset on, so they were mm -hmm. not anesthetized. I found that very exciting, also a bit scary um, working <laughs> with live animals, <laughs> and it worked out quite nicely. Um, <clears throat> but because of my biochemical training, I ended up thinking about, you know, considering it a little bit actually much too phenomenological mm. because at the time there was yeah. very little um there were very few entry points to um to correlate or relate what we what we were seeing there in terms of you know dopamine overflow to any physiological let alone mo molecular uh, processes mm -hmm. so this is why i um this is one reason why i didn't continue so i did a master mm -hmm. i could have gone on um as you know for a phd mm -hmm. um but two reasons made made me go back, and one was that I wanted to work in a more, you know, in in a more tractable system, a more mm. molecularly oriented, where I was thinking I could, um, I could understand better, um, you know, the processes that were going on, the processes at hand. And the other reason why I went back was, I had already married very early in my life, at the mm. age of twenty three. My wife joined me to come to Oxford, and, and she was training at a teacher as a teacher did her ex, did her thesis um in England and needed to go back to continue her teacher training and mm -hmm. I didn't want to let her go alone so I went back to Germany with her so then um coming back to Germany you also sort of came back to biochemistry uh working with um Reinhard Jan who was just starting out so at the time what drew you to Jan's lab and what really motivated you then uh huh. So as I said, I mean the main the main idea I had was to to work on more clearly defined molecular and cellular problems um, because yeah. I felt that um, that the level of understanding of mechanistic understanding would be would be deeper. But the decision for Reinhardt's lab, and here comes another example of 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 sheer luck <laughs> combined yeah. then with with a little bit um, a, a lack of luck, as you will as we'll see in a second, was that that. 
it actually didn't apply to Reinhard Jahn's lab. It applied to um, Hans Turnen's laboratory, who was one of the pioneers in um, you know nerve growth factor research. Yeah. And he was running a department at the institute at which Reinhard Jahn, then very young, was recruited to um, as a as a um, as a research group leader. And Turnen wrote to me and said. Um, um, thank you for your application. It looks very interesting, but mm -hmm. my lab is full um, and I have too many PhD students and too few postdocs, so I'm, I, I can't take on more PhD students. But I have this great idea. Mm -hmm. There is this person who just, you know, is about to come to our institute and he's yeah. looking for talented students. <laughs> why don't you Why don't you consider him? <laughs> and that was, excuse me, and that was very lucky because Reinhard had not been on my radar at the time. He just yeah. finished a stint as a postdoc with Paul Greengard. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, 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 and people in Munich obviously recognized his, his amazing talent. Mm -hmm. So uh, they recruited him and I started to read his papers and, um, and then decided that this is a very interesting endeavor. So yeah. we'll get in a minute to um, very um, kind of keystone work that you were able to do in, in Jan's lab. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, maybe I want to start with, I saw that you had a couple of papers where you were working on isolating a, this glutamate binding calcium and chloride sensitive protein with yes. unknown function, but that you found was localized to the mitochondria, but yes. not neurons. And so I was just no. curious about this. It sounded like kind of a first project you might have had in that lab. Uh, maybe can you tell us a little bit about that, what you were looking for with those papers? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is very interesting, and um, for all PhD students listening to that, um, you know, um, phases of um, a disappointment, um, you know, need to be endured. So, yeah. so, so this this particular. So when, when I came to when I, <laughs> when I came to Reiner's lab, and I think we will talk about uh, what he actually had in mind um, when he came to Munich. Uh, when I came to Reiner's lab, I was actually given, or I, I chose in a way. <laughs> a project that was really far out in the left field that had nothing to do with all the other activities and that resulted from from a collaboration that Reinhard has star had started as a as a postdoc in Greengard's lab with Shelley Halpane mm -hmm. and the idea was to use um brute force biochemistry to purify glutamate receptors mm -hmm. and at the time um you know various receptors had been cloned but the glutamate receptors had not been cloned and had not been purified mm -hmm. um other receptors ha actually had been um, identified by purification, for example, the glycine receptor using strictly affinity chromatography. But there was no affinity ligand available for glutamate receptors. So um, we yeah. started um, basically extracting brain membranes um, and reconstituting proteins into liposomes and measuring glutamate binding to them. And in the course of these pilot experiments, we identified, and this was actually Reinhardt's pilot work, mm -hmm. identified a, a, a glutamate binding protein that showed characteristics, for example, chloride sensitivity <clears throat> that had been described in the literature and um, and had been uh, linked to um, you know a weird type of glutamate receptor that that was certainly not umpergic or uh, a kinase receptor or NMDA, NMDA receptor. Yeah. So this was the starting point of 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 this, and this was my entire PhD project, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I purified that protein, you know, really with brute force um, conventional chromatography methods um, more or less to um, to purity and then we generated antibodies against that protein and we found it's not a receptor mm -hmm. it's a mitochondrial protein mm. and yeah. so in other words um, <laughs> um, at the, we could publish that um, in, in, in two papers in Journal of Biological Chemistry um, which, which was fine but it was basically um, you know a, cat a catastrophic <laughs> outcome 
of, of, a, of a PhD thesis. Um, wow. Do you know the name of that? Pro like, do we have no? A name actually, that the, it was never followed up. Huh. But we, I think, in retrospect, it might have been you know um, you know bicarboxylate carrier, some kind of carrier protein that that, that shuttles. Um, um, you know, small molecules in, in you know into mitochondria, but it was never followed up. It mm -hmm. it put an end to a series of about twenty, thirty papers on this weird binding activity because people realized that it is not a receptor. But beyond that, actually, I haven't I haven't followed it up. Probably the protein is long known now, and nobody else um, tried <laughs> to link what link what we did. Um, sure. They don't belong into the category of my most cited papers. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's probably been it's like when somebody discovered that protein later, little did they know it already had been discovered. Yes. Um, and actually, we'll come back to in a minute. I think you came back to the question of glutamate uh, uh, binding receptors later in your career. But first, let's go to, on to some other work um, that you also did during your PhD. So this was the result of a collaboration with Tom Sudoff, who yes. was at that time um, in Dallas, Texas, but um, is now here at Stanford. Um, and that was your work on a protein called synaptotagmid. So that's kind of now a famous uh, protein. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the time, it was a big un unanswered question. Um, what is it that enables fast calcium-dependent communication between neurons? So uh, I just had to say, I really loved your, your – you had a neuro view in neuron um, uh, last – or two years ago now, I guess, where you paid tribute to the three uh, 2013 Nobel laureates. Um, and you called yourself at that time a doubting Thomas. So maybe can you tell us about this collaboration and whether or not you realized at that time um, kind of the discovery opportunity that was at hand? Yes. So, so as I said, um, when I joined Reinhardt's lab, I, I took a project that was not in the focus of the attention of the rest of the lab. The rest of the lab uh, was basically set up to... Um, to decipher the molecular mechanisms of synaptic vesicle exocytosis at a time when not a single component of that machinery um, was known. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I watched this, um, this whole project develop right from the scratch um, uh, through um, the many visits that Tom Sutov, um, you know, paid to, uh, to, um, to Munich at the time, by the way, at the time he was still smoking occasionally, so he would always bump cigarettes off us. Um, <laughs> he's not he's not doing that. He smoked for the last twenty yeah, years, but probably. at the time, we would always have a smoke when he came. Um, so, time. so I, I watched that, um, and I and remember, remember, I came from a laboratory which was working really on 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 you know large large scale brain phenomena. I, mm. although I was a biochemist, I somehow um, it, 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 it somehow. It, at this early time of my career, it hadn't hadn't really properly entered my uh, my consciousness that 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 you have to think about protein machines irrespective of what cellular process you're looking at. And these guys, Tom and Reinhardt, had had exactly that in mind. They they thought about that process as a you know as a purely protein mediated um, yeah. process, which from my rather you know prior phenomenological training was still a, a kind of an an, an alien thought. And and um, it it took me really probably um, you know a couple of days of of discussions in the lab to understand what they had in mind and how brave how brave it really was because you know they they. they they assumed and, and knew there must be such a machinery that, that is responsible for for this process of calcium-dependent neurotransmitter release. But as, as I said, not a single component was known. So I, I remember, you know, me and, and, and another colleague in the lab say, yeah, these guys are probably a bit um, megalomaniac. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, it was it was a huge problem to be tackled, and I um, see. and and uh, and we basically, you know, thought, yeah, good luck. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not going to be that easy. But this is something that I learned from both of them, mm. to think um, in in. Um, and although I, I don't count myself um, among um, among their e- equals, but I've I've learned from them to think in in these kinds of very general and also you know um, more more brave uh, or braver categories. I so I, as I said, this um, this ruinous um, glutamate binding project, mm-hmm. glutamate binding protein project that we discussed earlier, this was my whole PhD thesis. And after that thesis, and this is probably interesting for some of the PhD students um, um, among those who listen, after that PhD thesis, I was more or less done with science. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was obviously disappointed because I thought I was you know up to something interesting, up to some very interesting new biology, and it turned out to be um, you know a misled project. So I had already um, written a few. Um, Articles for newspapers, and I had already, you know, I was about to enroll into journalist school, really? and abandoned um, science wow. altogether. <laughs> and then um, uh, Reinhard and I spoke, and Reinhard knew that I was, you know, probably his best protein chemist um, in the lab, apart, of course, apart from him. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know, I have this other project that, that that I would like you to do. He was about to leave to the United States um, to take on a position um, at Yale, yeah. um, and he said, why don't you? Um, try to purify um, synaptotangmine. We made this this great monoclonal antibody, which you can use as an affinity matrix. You know, use your skills. This protein, I think, is going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and more or less in parallel, Tom had also cloned cloned the protein. Um, so we knew that it had these domains that might be actually calcium binding domains. How did you know that? Well, Tom sort of cloned the synaptotangmine um, and, and recognized that uh, it contains two, dom- two domains that were known to um, be responsible for the calcium dependence of a protein kinase C. But, it, but basically, the, the, the structure predicted that it might be a calcium-binding protein. Synaptotangmine was the first calcium-binding protein, you know, um, d- discovered um, on synaptic vesicles. And that immediately, of course, um, triggered this idea that it might be involved in calcium sensing. Because people understood at the time that release was calcium-dependent, but they yes, didn't exactly. have the molecular machine, as you were exactly. talking about. Exactly. They didn't have the one, that the sensor, the, the exactly. putative calcium sensor at the time. So identifying a protein that could sense calcium or look similar to other calcium-binding proteins in the cell would have been a very exciting thing at that time, right? Exactly. That's, okay. a, that's the correct summary, and um, and so 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 I um, I purified the protein, and then we developed assays to to show that it actually does bind calcium mm-hmm. um, in a physiologically relevant um, concentration range, and that that study really made me what do you call it in English? Made me taste blood because I realized <laughs> realized quickly that this is a this is going to be a very very interesting discovery and 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 uh, you know I was going to be part of it as a as a then uh, you know very young postdoc mm-hmm. yeah. and that changed you know, entire changed my attitude entirely because you know I had for the first time the impression that if I if I'm lucky enough um, I have the you know I have the abilities to um, to discover um, interesting new biology, and mm. and and this is also this is always you know wh- what I wanted wanted to do. So that changed my decision, mm-hmm. and instead of um, of going to journalist school, mm-hmm. I um, I stayed in science. Mm. Yeah, and that was a, that's a classic paper now um, showing that synaptotagmin could bind calcium, as you said, at physiological 
concentrations and in the presence of lipid vesicles, which is even That's more true. interesting. Um, so it's this vesicle binding protein that's sensitive to calcium. So uh, after your graduate work, you um, headed abroad uh, to Steve Heinemann's lab at the SOC to work on characterizing NMDA receptors. So I guess you're going back a little bit to this glutamate. Yes. But not too long after that, uh, you rejoined the presynaptic release field to do um, postdoctoral work with your previous collaborator, Tom Sudoff, at mm -hmm. UT Southwestern. Um, so do you just miss this presynaptic work? or um, <laughs> What, what took you from San Diego? <laughs> yes. No, we love Alex, <laughs> It's it's I can explain it a little bit, but um, mm -hmm. as always, there is also um, a little bit of um, of uh, or stochastics um, involved sure. here. So the the I mean, of course, based on my my PhD work, I had been fascinated by glutamate receptors. This was basically what I had been thinking about until I started this synaptotungmine project, and um, and I also thought you know I need to get I need to get some some different exposure um you know by people who i who i, who I don't know yet yeah. so the and and i joined steve's lab um shortly after the first glutamate receptor was cloned in his lab by by my colleague michael holman and um i wanted to join his lab so the the, the cloning phase of these receptors was you know was well underway Mm -hmm. uh, the the NMDA, the NMDA receptor at the time was still lacking, but 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 several um, AMPA receptors came out, you know, in in very short in very short intervals, um, followed by uh, by uh, by KNAT receptors and then also by NMDA receptors. So, I wanted to join Steve's lab uh -huh. to study the scaffold proteins that um, or the interacting proteins of these receptors that. Mm -hmm. um, that um, you know make them, for example, um, you know assemble at synapses, um, and yeah. and in this particular phase, I think I was in a in a in a slightly unlucky stretch of history, because um, it turned out again that the purification of these receptors without sufficiently um, established affinity tools um, was very very difficult, um, and. Um, as a consequence, um, you know the, the the studies that we that we conducted were were rather um, I don't know rather limited in scope because we we were able to purify these receptors to a certain degree. Um, we could we could um, study the um, the subunit um, compositions of these receptors, which I think is is in a way still an interesting finding. The finding that these receptors you know are assembled of a subset of 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 subunits that are mutually exclusive mm -hmm. yeah but but the ultimate aim of of identifying the machinery that the, that anchors these receptors uh, that was not achieved that uh, that that uh, in that regard i failed and this was interesting this was br sh just shortly before um yeast to hybrid screens um you know ah, entered the mm -hmm. entered the the scene and they changed that um, because you know the the PSC95 scaffold proteins and okay. and several others were all identified initially um, via yeast to hybrid screen. So I I came at a time when the cloning was over, mm -hmm. and I I I was there at a time when the tools to study these interacting proteins weren't properly developed yet. Um, so the phase ended up with with quite a few papers in in, in nice journals, but again um, I I thought my my tr my personal, not Steve's. I mean, Steve mm. was very successful, and several other people in the people in the lab as well. But my traction with a biochemical approach to study these molecules was just very limited. Mm. 
that is why I changed um, fields. Got you. Because you were mentioning with the saptatagmin, you had this nice antibody, and that kind of facilitated some studies. Exactly, yeah. But I'm not sure if you had those kind of tools with this. No, we um, did not. We, yeah. we actually we, we made them in the course of this time, but um, we published the first NMDA receptor localization study. Some of these papers are pretty well cited, but the advent of these was a bit too late, because by that time, you know, all these papers came out based on yeast to hybrid screens about scaffold protein. So right. in, a way, in a way, I was a bit... Um, I think I was just a little bit too early with the idea of um, lacking the right tools, and by the time I would have been ready, um, I was I was scooped left and right. <laughs> but anyway, you went to Talus, and you went back to the presynapse, and you actually ended up isolating another important um, regulator of presynaptic release called the MONK13 protein. And so I think mm -hmm. this is really cool because um, MONK13, as you might uh, guess by the sound, is related to UNC13, which, as you might guess by the name, um, is, is related to a protein that's from worms. Um, and so I think we might have a lesson in evolutionary conservation here. Maybe can you tell us about um, why you decided to work on looking for a mammalian homologue of UNC13? I mean, the, 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 the UNC13 um, uh, gene was identified in the context of a very large screen by, um, uh, at the time by Sidney Brenner for mutations in, 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 in the nematodes, the elegans that cause um, uh, uncoordinated movements. Yeah. And, um, and, and various other researchers subsequently you know, subdivided these um, over 100 UNC, uh, UNC mutants into various different categories. And as you may imagine, you find um, you know, muscle neurotransmitter receptors among them and various other proteins. But a subset of these, um, of these um, mutants were shown to be insensitive to the acetylcholine esterase inhibitor aldicarb indicating yeah. that these worms have a, a deficit um, in neurotransmitter release and therefore are not as heavily hit um, by, um, by, by this ACH uh, esterase um, inhibitor as, as wild-type worms. And, um, and among these, um, these aldicarb-resistant mutants was UNC13, um, was the UNC13 mutant and, and, and actually several other mutants um, affecting presynaptic function. And of these... Um, um, UNC13 looked fascinating because it was a protein that had also C2 domain, so it looked like a calcium-regulated protein. And it had several other interesting bells and whistles, I call them, mm -hmm. um, um, mm -hmm. uh, regulatory domains that, that, that indicated that this is an exquisitely um, regulated protein. And the other reason why it was interesting was that the phenotype of the mutation in C. elegans was very, very strong. So these mutants are almost mm -hmm. completely paralyzed. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the expectation was that... Um, that that any um, homologous function in in mammals would be um, similarly um, uh, uh, similarly important, but in general we can say um, that that in that field um, and this is also reflected if you think you know, if you think about it in a way by the Nobel Prize in 2013 in that field uh, we were all inspired by um, by by the work of people working on. Um, non-mammalian model systems. I mean, the yeast work by, by Randy Shackman right. is one example, and, and several of the molecules that, that, that Shackman identified, or, or the genes that Shackman identified uh, in, his, in his pioneering screens later turned out to be important in, in, you know, in, in the context of mammalian neurotransmission as well. And it's similar with, with the C. elegant screens. I mean, it, it has been and it continues to be a source of, of information, and many of my closest colleagues with whom I talk a lot are 
are the elegant neuroscientists uh -huh. um, beca because they have um, wow. usually as geneticists a very broad knowledge of neuroscience in general and 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 the the screens um, that are that, that 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 were done and have been done and are are still done by these people are a constant source of of information for us. So no point in being sure. a snub about mammalian. <laughs> yeah. I wrote in this. I wrote in this in this review um, uh, of, the, of the Nobel Prize uh, that I'm a yeast believer yes. as much as I'm a, as much as I'm, I'm a yeast believer. I'm I'm a worm believer um, as well. Um, and I just want to ask yeah. one quick question. So, so you were talking about all of this uh, kind of protein machinery, and so monk is among many other proteins I think that have been isolated. That are kind of these. Um, I, I guess. Correct me if I'm wrong. I would characterize them as kind of like adapter or assisting proteins in the whole process of vesicle release. And there's there's a lot of these. So maybe you could just kind of um, tell us, especially for the students in the audience, why would you say there are so many of these adapter proteins? Are they required strictly for membrane fusion? I think you I think you have to differentiate a little bit. Um, I would not call them adapter proteins. I would call them in this case, um, in the case of Monkswin, I would call them snare regulating proteins. So proteins that actually regulate the the actual fusion machinery which consists of um, of snare proteins residing you know on 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 the two um membranes that are supposed that are supposed to fuse some of these um snare regular regulatory proteins like monk 18 again a monk <clears throat> um are not only required for um for synaptic transmitter release but also for other um secretory processes and probably also for intracellular fusion processes and monk certain is a little bit of a special case because in, it seems to be absolutely uh, required for presynaptic function in its absence and there are three isoforms so i should rather say in the absence of of any monk 13s in a, in a, in a given synapse there's zero transmitter release no spontaneous transmitter release no evoked transmitter release so it shuts down these synapses entirely but the neurons look morphologically, at least in culture, perfectly fine. So, um, in other words, uh, these molecules are not generally required for membrane addition, so the cells can grow, and growth is also dependent on membrane insertion. It's this specific phenomenon of, of, of neurotransmitter release that is, that is exquisitely, but also, you know, pervasively regulated by these proteins. And um, we still don't know exactly how these proteins operate exactly, but it's, it's clear that they... Um, that they regulate um, the assembly of the of the snare complex to um, to generate a state of the vesicle that we call fusion competent or readily releasable, and and it is these vesicles that are triggered um, to fuse by an arriving action potential in the influx, um, um, or the concomitant influx of, of calcium, and and this process of 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 priming that is of the of the preparation of a of a partially, probably a partially assembled snare complex um, that is ready to fuse, that seems to be an absolute requirement for um, for synapses, and it's apparently not required for um, for many other um, um, secretory or, or you know membrane fusion processes. Because it's a very fast, very I guess you could quote unquote difficult process. It requires a pretty complex machine. It sounds like yes, and 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 I also have to say, yeah. I mean the the, the 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 exact molecular understanding. Of, of how these proteins work uh, was not really contributed by by us because we are no structural biologists and it has been structural biologists like um, Jose Rizzo in collaboration mm -hmm. with Tom Sutov who who have done who have made the the major contributions to our understanding but I think one thing that's oh, interesting yeah. so the, the the mutation 
the MONK13 loss of function phenotype is probably the most specific and strongest inhibiting phenotype on presynaptic transmitter release. For example, if you knock out individual snares, you still get some release, probably because, because other snare proteins can step in um, you know, for the one that, that, that has been removed. But, but if you have no MONK13s, you cannot make synapses yeah. fuse. So is it almost like, because if these are proteins that are required to create the readily releasable pool, if that part is already done, if you already have vesicles docked and ready to go, maybe you could still get some release because, you know, they're around. But if you just yes. didn't even get them ready in the first place, I guess. That's way, what we think is... is like the first is, step. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And then structurally, sort of what's known about how MONK13 does assemble these um, snares. So if, if the snare is kind of a ve- vesicle sitting on top of a membrane yes. where the snares are zippered, um, waiting to, to have their final fusion, you know... Um, this is probably a, an area in which we um, still in which we are still, um, you know, substantially ignorant. Um, we proposed early on that um, one key event, you know, might be the um, the activation of syntaxin, the opening up, and others proposed it as well, the, the opening up, up of syntaxin. Syntaxin is one of the three snares involved in fusion, and it can adopt a close conformation, which is, um, for example, binding MONK18, in which it um, apparently is not able to engage in snare complex assembly. And um, and and we found early on that MONK13 bind to this N-terminus of syntaxin that falls back onto the protein and exerts this inhibitory in, in this inhibitory function. This notion was challenged um, in various papers subsequently, um, but now recent data from Jose Rizzo indicate that MONK13 might actually indeed operate in such a manner, but there are no um, clear-cut structural data um, that, that would support that. So what I'm getting from this is even though work may have already won a Nobel Prize, there still may be much more work to be done on this <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and, yes. Mm-hmm. And MONK13 did not get the Nobel Prize. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, so I guess we kind of want to touch a little bit on what you're doing in your own lab these days um, at Max Planck, where you actually started in 1995, so I guess you're celebrating an anniversary um, as of this year. But anyway, so in that lab, you've continued to work on MONK, um, but also have had a diverse number of other um, projects um, including working on ubiquitin ligases um, and also inhibitory synapse proteins such as colobistin. Maybe you could just brief us a little bit on, on, on what you're working on these days. Basically, um, we still have a very strong interest in presynaptic function, so we study now these presynaptic regulatory proteins, mostly MONK13s and related proteins in more complex systems to, um, to basically see whether the phenomena that we have characterized mostly um, in single cells, you know, using cell biological and um, electrophysiological methods, whether they are in any way relevant in synapses as they occur um, in vivo. That's still a very strong yeah. um, focus of the lab. And the other focus is on, <clears throat> this is more, this is newer, and by far not um, as as as, um, as well advanced, and um, also riddled with 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 quite a few problems. The, the, the other focus is on postsynaptic um, modifications. We are focusing not anymore on ubiquitination, but we have invested heavily in protein sumulation in 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 neurons, which is very much uncharted territory. And we have generated mouse tools, for example, to affinity purify now um, the various sumos and their, of course, conjugated proteins.
And we also wanted to touch on the fact that you've, you're also doing work on, um, you have very diverse projects, um, on the transsynaptic cell adhesion molecule Neuroligand 4, um, which is really interesting because it's uh, one Neuroligand out of the four in the family that um, hasn't been so heavily studied in mouse models. Um, I've always been told because it has a low expression level, but it was, it was actually one of the first and most common neuroligands to be found mutated in human patients with autism. The mouse author log of the human neuroligand 4 that has been linked in various studies to autism is localized and acts at inhibitory synapses. And, and, and this has been our focus, so we have, have, have studied how these proteins, or what the role of these proteins is at inhibitory synapses, and the bottom line is that they are required to um, assemble the transmitter reception apparatus at post-synapses. We have characterized how they do that, um, which is via activating this um, this um, switch molecule called colibistin, uh, which then in turn recruits postsynaptic scaffolds to the nascent synapse. And um, and we have characterized the uh, the functional consequences of mutating mutating these genes, and in this context, of course, neuroligin four is is the most interesting, but probably also the most problematic. And I will talk about this in my talk, but I can tell you as well, because it is the ortholog of um, of of the human neuroligin four that it is mutated in so many cases of um, of monogenic uh, heritable uh, autism, but it it has diverged from the human. Um, from the from the human sequence quite substantially it ex is it is expressed at very low levels as you said but it also is more different from its human orthologue than any of the other mouse neur mouse are from their respective human orthologue for we decided and you may call that stupid or you may call that brave or we i mean we decided to to try to crack the nut and 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 find out what neuroligin 4 does which is that we still don't know uh, in how far the mouse variant, uh, the mouse orthologue, really reflects the situation um, uh, uh, regarding the human orthologue, and and we are, for example, and others do that as well. But we are now looking with more emphasis at uh, at the human neuroligin four and its localization, for example, in in your in human patient derived neurons or um, or um, or in um, in even in human tissue. And I actually another question, just based on the neuroligin research, is. Uh, I think what, one really interesting question in research on these transsynaptic cell adhesion molecules is sort of um, does the presynapse get set up first and recruit the post, or does the post, or do they kind of uh, congruently set each other up? And I think, and this is, I think this most of this still requires um, experimental proof. I think the the presynapse has to have some kind some kind of instructive. Um, capacity because this is the part of the synapse that knows in advance you know what kind of transmitter it's going to use it you know the, the presynaptic right. protein composition you know particularly the vesicular carriers and the and the transmembrane uptake um, carriers uh, uh, plasma membrane uptake carriers they define the the transmitter characteristic of of of, of the synapse to be while um, the postsynaptic membrane you know may contain you know, both types of receptor cell cultured neurons do that. For That's example, a really good point. So, so, yeah. so I think the presynapse must have some some instructive role. But what that role exactly is, um, I think it's still in, in in the mammalian system at least is still is is still largely unknown. Um, my 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 expectation would be that, um, for example, a, you know, an, an inhibitory presynaptic terminal originating from a, a parvalbumin-positive basket cell in the hippocampus should contain 
a protein that is able to recruit neuroligin 2 um, or to interact with neuroligin 2 postsynaptically so that neuroligin 2 can um, recruit GABA receptors to this um, to this particular nascent synapse this is this yeah. is the basic scenario that that, that I have in mind but the, but the tools um, to study such a problem are only now emerging you know, well I think I I gave you a, um, a pretty a pretty general view of, of how this might work. I think the molecular understanding of these processes is still very limited. Yeah, there's just there's an <laughs> incredible diversity of cell adhesion molecules, and they could all act in sort of combination. And, and what is striking um, is that, there, as you said, there seems to be a substantial redundancy not only of different isoforms of the same um, adhesion protein family, but you know the you know the, the redundancy among among various different ones and 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 um, not only me but many others have have you know have proposed that um a combination of those may actually, might actually be involved or, or or the specific combination of these might be involved in 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 synapse um, in synapse specificity and the particular equipment of a particular subset of synapses but but as i said um i think it's um it's still um it's still a very interesting and 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 very promising research area with a with a lot of um with a lot of unknowns. Yeah, I think it's a great point to think about. Um, yeah. All right, so maybe we can close with uh, what we call our rapid-fire questions. Yes. All right, so we have three of these, supposed to be fun, supposed to be light, so just answer with whatever comes to your uh, mind. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, we can try six if the first... <laughs> We've got an extra one, so we can do yeah. that, too. <laughs> all right, um, so... Um, you mentioned before, uh, you know, the travails of a graduate student. So, you know, uh, we're expecting a good answer to this. But if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Niels, as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself? Um, try to uh, try to make um, informed decisions, <laughs> but be aware that um, luck might guide you in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes cool. a good direction. Um, all right, so our second question was, uh, so you've participated in work uh, that has been recently recognized with a Nobel. Um, where were you when you heard that uh, Tom Randy and uh, uh, James Rothman had gotten a Nobel? I was actually at a meeting that Tom was on his way to oh. in Spain. <laughs> You're on the other end of that. <laughs> yes, we were, and, and, and I think we were four postdocs at that meeting, and we received him with a um, standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been exciting. Right. It was. Cool. Yeah, my, my wife was there as well, and mm -hmm. I she came to the to the to the dinner um, at that meeting because I mean, she just joined me, and I told her. Um, Look, Margaret, I um, I I try to really make this an exciting ex excursion, and this includes that Tom Tom gets the Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. All right. Um, so, uh, you've been in both Germany and in the U.S. in Texas. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any uh, food dish that you take from each, or any uh, cultural thing that stood out as being the best that each place has to offer? I like carnitas. <laughs> That's Texan. <laughs> Mexican, Texan, Mexicans, mm -hmm. but also, but I also like um, like burgers a lot. Um, mm. I shouldn't, <laughs> but I also like um, the ethnic food um, 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 
variety that you have in the States, which I enjoyed, which we don't have yeah. in that quality in Germany. But I'm also a big fan of um, of German food, particularly what we call Eintopf, which are you know big soups, lentil soups, um, mm. and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Should we ask the extra question? Yeah. <laughs> Let's ask the extra question. So, uh, as I mentioned, you've been at Max Planck since 1995. So this year, I think, marks your... Did I do my math right? 20, 20th anniversary? Yep. Of your lab. Did you do anything to celebrate? <laughs> no. We celebrated my 50th birthday, which ah. was three years ago. And my and my and my 20th anniversary of my of of, 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 of my role as a director is only um is, is still six years away. Ah, okay. Well we'll look forward to that celebration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, this today. is really great. It's, thank you so much. Thank you too. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Catalina, and Forrest Colney. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Eddie Alboran, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, Eddie Yi. And I'm Fuchsial and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm Eddie Yi. Thank you.